we are in our second week of this new series called Nexus. Nexus is a word that means a connection point, a place where two things intersect. And so this entire series, we'll be looking at how the Bible puts this and, and how the, the main point of our faith are these intersections, these places where heaven and earth come together. And the Bible is really big on this. It happens all the time. One of the most famous, of course, is Jesus, right? Fully God, fully human. But that's not where it stops. It's, it's all throughout the Bible, and it starts right in the beginning. But you see, Jesus was rooted in Scripture and these nexus points. As Jesus hung on the cross, one of the revolutionaries next to him, one of the rebels next to him, cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So what is this paradise that Jesus is talking about? Well, I want to play a mind reading game with you. Um, I, I feel like I can read your mind. If I asked you that question, what does this, if you were to use one word, when I say paradise, when Jesus is saying the word paradise, you say one word comes to your mind. Let's see if, let's see if it's the same on the count of three. Here we go. It's mind reading game, and I'm going to reveal it, see if I got it right. One, two, three. Oh, oh I heard a lot of good stuff. God was great. I love that. I heard, though, I think what I've heard most of is, is heaven, paradise, heaven. The simplified uh, default, oh, that was me pushing buttons I shouldn't be pushing. I'm going to leave it to you now, Katie. Sorry about that. The simplified default definition of heaven is this place where after we die, our souls go to, to be with God forever. And, and whether that means mansions, right? Uh, whether it means all sorts of like eternal worship services. Some people really don't like that idea after today, though. I, you know, I like that. If, if it's like today, yeah. Some may be thinking about, etern- you know, really epic rounds of golf, maybe, when it comes to heaven. Yeah, we got some people who love that. Whatever that is to you, heaven becomes this place where we go to be with God. What if I told you that the Bible's definition of paradise, though, we're going back to paradise. What if I told you the Bible's definition of paradise was a tad different than than mansions in the sky. So when Jesus uses this Greek word, paradise, and I'm not going to start speaking in Greek, we don't need that, but when he uses this Greek word, if you want to know what that means, you can go to any Greek-English dictionary. And in there, the word can be translated as paradise. Love it, great, it just can mean so many things to us, so it actually means something specific here. The word paradise means a cultivated, cared-for space where creation is uh, curated in a way that brings out great beauty. I I may not have defined that totally well for you, but we all have seen these places before. You see, the definition of this word is paradise, but specifically, a garden. Yeah, a garden. Inside joke for older generations, I will not be singing the Joni Mitchell song, I'm sorry. Back to the garden, Woodstock, no. But if you are younger, Google Woodstock song and you'll hear a good one. I like Crosby, Stills, Nash version the best. 
But other than the song, I wonder, what do you think of when you hear the word garden? What, what stands out to you? Maybe from the Bible. We're not going to play the mind-reading game. It's probably the famous Garden of Eden. So let's jump right into this then. So if Jesus is using this word paradise, it means garden. He's referring to this idea, this garden, and how it all kicks off the Bible. And what's, what's that about? What is he talking about? So we're in Genesis 2, starting at verse 8. Feel free to use the Bibles in front of you. I switched to the NIV just because I heard that you have NIV Bibles in the pews. So we'll be using those. You can follow along if you have it on your phone as well. Chapter 2, verse 8. Also note before we go, you'll notice that I, I've skipped some of the parts on the trees tree of knowledge of good and evil, and tree of life. We're going to be covering that next week. So don't worry, we'll come back to it if you really want to. Chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the flesh, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this foundational grounding in something that, that we may not always think about. Your presence with us, abundant in the midst of our everyday lives, a heaven and earth nexus. God, we pray that as we continue to meditate upon this text together, would you give us a fresh insight into what you are calling us to be and to do today. In your name we pray, amen. Do we have any green thumb people out here? Yeah, we got some green thumb people. Any brown thumb people? Yes, brown thumbs represent. That's people who kill plants. I'm just, yeah, that's a brown thumb. Um, I'm one of those myself. I try, but it just just never really works out. So I rely upon my wife for the the greenness in our house. Whether we like it or not, gardening is an essential task that leads to something very beautiful. Gardens. I grew up going to the Arboretums in uh, Arcadia and the one only a mile away here um, in Fullerton. 
But places like the Huntington Library, the Getty, Rogers Gardens, these places elicit something deep from us. They're artistic, but more than that, it's, it's, it's real life and art together. These beautiful things that elicit something deep within us, gardens. But gardens in the Bible are not just eye candy. That's not the role that they play the way they play that for us. They're not just beautiful spaces. And maybe they're not just beautiful spaces for you today. You might actually find yourself understanding deeply what it meant in the Bible. Let me, let me go on and, and explain that. You see, the gardens in Scripture were places where life from heaven touched life from earth. And in that space, something beautiful occurred. And life flourished and grew. Think of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the, the ancient wonders, not the modern ones. The one that was always the most disappoint, disappointing to me was Hammurabi's uh, Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I didn't think that was very wonderful, actually, when growing up. I wanted to see big buildings, you know, like pyramids and rah, all that kind of stuff. But really, the reason why it was an ancient wonder was because it spoke not just to the beauty of the garden, but to something deep within humans. And this combination of heaven and earth. Babylon itself, the name Babylon, the ancient name, means gate of the gods. The portal between heaven and earth, at least that's what they said. The question, though, that the Bible poses... Is this garden in the beginning in Genesis 2, which garden is it? Which gate? Which, which God are we opening the gate to when we go to this garden? Is it Babylon's God? Marduk? Ooh. With his deep tie to violence and aggression and, and really the underworld and death. Is that the God we're opening the gate to? Or is this other God that we see in this story of creation who gives, who creates, who loves, who invites, who shares? Is it that God? And this is the idea that the ancient reader would have been posed with. We can look back and see all this play out in history, but for them it was the life they lived. The gods of power of violence, of money, or the God of love, the God of mercy and grace. God's space, we call it heaven. That's a, an English word, right? It's a, it's a loner. I think it's a loner world, a word from something else, but we call this thing heaven. And human space that we call earth, the Bible also has these terms for it as well, it's made to overlap God's space is made, no, excuse me, we are made, he, earth is made to overlap with heaven, a nexus point. The, the two are not meant to just be separate and stay separate. Scripturally speaking, it's what we were made for. It's why Jesus prays this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. This is essential to who Jesus sees himself as. He's not just this person trying to save people from earth and take them to heaven. He's the person who's saying, no, the whole goal is for heaven to come on earth. And the garden that's in the land of Eden is the place where God's righteous and just rule and reign completely overlap with earth. And these two earth creatures that we see in the story walk and talk with God. It's one of the only places in Hebrew where this specific form of this verb is used so when it's talking about walking with God. It's, you can think of the Australian version, a walkabout. It's a deep knowing, understanding, being with God. And so this is where we meet our ultimate goal as followers of Jesus. You hear me out here. I'm going to say something here that might sound abrasive. Our goal isn't to leave earth as disembodied spirits and go to heaven. Our goal as Christians, God's purposes, God's plans, at least as described in Scripture, is not to become disembodied spirits and go to heaven. That may sound abrasive. Let me, let me say something, a quick note. For those of us who have lost loved ones, for those of us who felt the grief and pain of burying someone we shouldn't have had to bury or would have hoped never to have had to. I am not saying that this person is not with God. In fact, that is the hope in Scripture. The one thing the New Testament tells us is that for those of us in Christ, when we die, what? We are with Christ. Some people say with God. The issue has become that we've turned that hope, which is a beautiful hope and very true, we've turned that into the entire thing, that we go to heaven. And the end of Scripture tells us something far greater. The end of Scripture tells us, especially in Revelation, and we read it in the call to worship, this idea that the heavens come down out of the heavens and come to earth, and God is with us. We are His people. And he is our God, and he lives with us. We don't go anywhere else. Now, we see this text, and we can explore this further in many weeks to come about what that means. But for right now, hold on to that piece. And there is a really important reason why. And the important reason why is for us not to miss the point, first and foremost, that what God has for us, at least as we read in Scripture, is that God's plan is to unite heaven and earth. So let's explore what this looks like in the Garden Genesis story and why this vision differs a bit from the whole souls in heaven version. Like the buds of a flower in a garden, I'd like to highlight three buds of what this unity of heaven and earth look like in the Genesis 2 story And I sometimes despise doing this because this story is far greater than me finding three application points for you today. (laughs) 
I think it makes it kind of trite sometimes, but let's do that a bit to, to kind of dig deeper into what this could mean, these, these three buds of the story. The first bud is this. The first bud is our calling, our calling. God places humans, a human, and then multiple humans come from this, in the garden, this place where heaven and earth overlap. And God gives the human a task, a calling. What is that task? Work, care for, keep the land. This is the task. Care for and keep the land you've been given. We can go on and talk about how the same two words, to work and to keep, they're the same two words that priests are to do for the temple when that actually gets established. The same two words. It's telling us something about the essential job for all of us as humans and how important it is to work and to keep, to, to, to take care of this land that we've been given. Many of us have experienced, though, deep disconnect with this. Generations of Americans and many modern, uh, newer, younger generations are, are really feeling this pension, what this means in their lives. A calling. What does God want me to do? What does that look like? What if I'm not feeling it? And, and these disconnects have le- led to just deep depression in many people. It's, it's not easy. And many of us who have gone through this process ourselves know it, and many of us who have had people who have helped us through it can appreciate those people because we know this is not an easy thing. Not an easy thing to just say, yep, I'm going to do that. And sometimes life comes upon you and you do the thing that God has called you to do, and sometimes God always doesn't seem that clear on what we should be doing. But... We've been given this call to work. And from this disconnect to a reconnection with something deeper. See, I believe the Bible is telling us something here about work. And it's a theme that continues to come up through Scripture over and over in the wisdom literature of Scripture. Of how work is essential to who we are as humans. This calling to continue to move forward. I don't think... Retirement is the goal. In fact, I've heard, I want to judge folk because I'm not there yet. I'm only 43. But I've heard sometimes when you retire, your life gets a bit busier, actually. Am I right? It does. There's no retirement in life, really. There's no retirement from faith. When you retire, I've been told, you retire, you die. You put it on hold at all and you sit back and do nothing. Your body catches up pretty quickly. And so work is essential to whatever age we are, wherever we may be, to to apply the gifts that God has given us to this world that desperately needs those gifts. Work, according to the Bible, is not just something you have to do before you go to heaven. It's not not a, a necessary evil. The value of work is not to get as much money as we can before we die. 
At least it's not presented that way in Scripture. That may be more of a modern arrangement of sorts that we have. Sometimes our visions of going to heaven are shaped by a vision of this retirement like heaven's one big retirement. But see, I I don't think that's what it's going to be like. And it's hard. I know this is weird, talking about what heaven is like. But, but we have as Christians some tools. What is heaven like? What is this whole idea? We, we know what Jesus looks like when he's risen from the dead. He's a real body. He's not a spirit, right? He says, hey, put your finger right here. Hey, give me some fish. I'm hungry, <laughs> right? Hey, you see me here with you. You can hold me. You can touch me. I think that's a, a, a sign, and Christians have always taken that as a sign. The Apostle Paul took that as a sign of what that meant. But here's another thing. Think about it. If this garden is this heaven and earth overlap, if it's telling something to us about what the goal is, Adam and Eve are given work to do. I have a hard time not thinking heaven's going to have some sort of work to it or this overlap. But I don't think it's going to be this disconnected, depressed sort of existence. It's fulfilling, complete work. Where where what you do, you see contributed. And and where the end of who you are is connected deeply to the place where you live. The people you live with. And this is, I believe, a subtle switch that when you go out of this mentality of spirits and heaven to this idea that Scripture tells us about the heaven and earth overlap, you really start to get a sense that, yes, work is difficult. It's, it's tedious. It's, it's a grind. But there's something to it that speaks to our souls and who we are. St. Francis de Sales a 16th to 17th century Catholic bishop could help us today. And it's, he, he provided a one-liner that you may know. He said, or he wrote, bloom where you are planted. Wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing, be all there in that place. Sure, there's going to be times God transplants you from one place to another. Sometimes moves are inevitable, but don't let yourself transplant yourself when you're in that spot. Don't go to another place when the people you have in front of you and the work you have to do is right there. Bloom where you're planted. So that first bud is of the overlap of heaven and earth is a calling. The second bud is companionship. Companionship. This means a lot to a lot of people. Oftentimes it's talked about in terms of a marriage covenant together, but it can mean so much more than that, this companionship. A woman's job, a woman's creation is not to be an assistant to the man. A woman is to be really related to the man in that closeness of relationship the way that the human actually is related to God. That we are helpers. We're helpers one for another. This story, i got to be careful, we read about ribs. The word rib is actually never used in the Genesis story. I'm causing, I'm lighting fires now. In fact, the story says that when God created this woman, he actually took one from his side. One from his side. 
In Hebrew, there's a perfectly good word for rib. This is not it. This is referring to the temple, to the tabernacle, to the ark. There are two sides of all of that. There's the curtain with the two sides. And God, change your visual metaphor, ish, isha, man, woman. It's a bit different than maybe we've kind of grown up with of the rib and pulling from that, that bit, but it's not there. The, the idea is that God doesn't create a woman to serve the man. I gotta, I, I'm not trying to prove points or anything. I'm trying to say, right? Right? Okay, so we have women love us. The whole point is it's a companionship, not a servitude. And that's very important, not just to make points. I'm not scoring points here. I'm saying that we can often do that to people. That's my helper. That's my assistant. They do what I say. Ooh, I'm in charge. Ooh. This is telling us something different about the relationship with humans that God created, that God put into work, into creation. You see, God gives us helpers. We have helpers in our lives. Sometimes they're there and we don't want them. <laughs> Maybe they're not the kind we really would like to have. We want other helpers. We want the ones that we see other people having. They're really great helpers. They do every, everything the other people say. Not my helpers. They tell me stuff and they tell me hard truths that I don't want to hear. But God gives us these helpers, these companions to go through life with. Because the second bud of this creation story is companionship. The third bud, the final bud then, is this really interesting riddle. There's a riddle. The Bible is full of riddles. It's really fun. And this final one is this. The third bud is compassion. Uh, and I haven't been done doing any of the slides, have I? I've been walking around. You're totally fine. Yeah, good. I was supposed to do the slide clicker and everything, and I just got into it. The final bud is compassion. You see, the story of the Bible goes on to tell how there's this one Adam, and God splits the Adam and makes Ish and Isha, man and woman. Right? And then, as the story continues, these two come back together to unite. How there is a fundamental difference, man and woman, still human, both human, but this first fundamental split. This is not me making statements about gender or sexuality today. Don't hear that right now. I'm not making those statements. I'm exploring the text here, and that is this. God divides so that there will be a unity. And, and not a unity that you lose your identity. Not the kind where you unite and then because we're uniting, you do what I say. You become like me and what I like because I'm, you know, the more powerful one, right? So you just take on what I like because I wouldn't really want to do what you like. Or maybe I don't really see myself as a powerful person, so I'll just do whatever you say. Become like you. This is not the story that we're told in Scripture. Unity is not uniformity. Amen. Unity is maintaining this person who God has created you to be, while at the same time, 
coming together under some banner. The banner of God for us as Christians, Jesus Christ. In fact, wired into our very faith is this unity. What does Jesus say to his disciples? When you're united, the whole world will know my Father and me. Right? Be one as the Father and I are one. This unity is essential, and it takes its place in this deep compassion. I've known this deeply, and you may know this story. You may have the same story where my best friend in life was my greatest enemy when I first met him. I hated him. (laughs) That's a strong word. I know I'm not supposed to say that in certain households. But we were competing for the same spot on the basketball team. That competition is strong, my friends. And I hated everything about him. I hated his hair. I hated the way he played. I took great joy when we were playing to, to, um, to do this thing. I can't remember what it's called. I'm sure some basketball players told me, but you go like through, you dribble through their legs and you get it on the other side and score. That embarrassment is just sublime when you do it to someone. It's horrible. That's what I wanted to do, right? And so over time though, these two different people vying for the same position begin to become friends and grow in our friendship. To this day, we have almost diametrically opposed political ideals. (laughs) Really. But what the cool thing is, is we're able to share them and still be loved and respect each other in that. It's, 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 it's an incredibly beautiful thing that I think God has wired into who we are. There's a lot of conversations about these fundamental parts of who we are as Christians and justice that we are going to get to, yes, 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 but this unity across divides. Some people say unity and diversity. Some people say that it's who, we're all wired differently, created differently, but we're made to be one in Jesus Christ. The third bud is compassion. And so, you may have noticed when I started this sermon, I used a word that you might not have been used to. I said that the two revolutionaries, the two rebels on the cross, you say, wait a second, that's not rebels, it's not revolutionaries, it's what? Thieves. Thieves on the cross, right? We've heard a lot of that. The thief on the cross. That's typically how it's named. But here's the interesting thing. The word thief here, see, I hate doing this because it feels like I'm reinventing the Bible here, but it's not. It's right there in the language. These two words that are used for those thieves, both of them were used by the Roman Empire to talk about rebels, revolutionaries, people who were trying to overthrow the government. It's probably why they were sacrificed next to this person called the King of the Jews, They were rebels. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. One of the thieves, one of the revolutionaries, mocks Jesus. He says, you're a king. Get down from there. Save yourself and us. Come on. And he's just mocking him. And the other has an epiphany. It's appropriate. This is the season we're in of epiphany. And he has this epiphany. And he realizes, no, This king, this king and this kingdom, and the death he's dying, this actually is exactly what we've been going towards the whole time. 
This king is different. It's different than the empire. This king doesn't use the tools of the empire to defeat the empire. This king uses completely different things of self-service and sacrifice and mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't make any sense. But it did to that revolutionary at that moment. And so he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the king says, truly, I tell you this day, you'll be with me in the garden, in the overlap space between heaven and earth. I got you. Let that be a word of hope for you today. God has got this. That in the midst of, of all of the chaos and confusion around us, in the midst of all the other overlaps with the other gods of this, of, of uh, the other gods with the earth, the gods of power, the gods of influence, the gods, these are not, by the way, bad things. They are part of the created order, but when they overlap with us such that they become our God. As God is saying, no, there's another overlap here. There's another garden. And it's available to all of us through faith in Jesus Christ, to social outcasts, to condemned criminals, even to the agents of the empires that cause the destruction. It's available. The garden. It's open to us. Not so that we become part of a new empire that defeats all other empires or part of a really cool social club that everyone wants to be part of and we tell everyone while they're, why they are wrong and why we are right. No, 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 no. That's not this king's task. This king is creating a compassionate, companion-filled calling for us to reflect the king, and be the overlap between heaven and earth through faith in Jesus. Jesus, God with us. Jesus, the garden itself. Jesus, paradise. Let's pray.